From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Strap on your parachute. It's time for What Goes Up with Sarah Ponzik and Mike Regan. Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week on the show, is the market melt-up finally over? Stocks came back to earth this week after a spectacular 60% surge in the S&P 500 from its lows in March. We'll talk with a veteran investment strategist and economist about what an unusual summer it was and how, like the changing of the seasons, markets may be in store for some less favorable weather. And as always, we'll close out the episode with our tradition, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. Sarah, I got to warn you, I'm double dipping on the crazy things this week. That's good because I uh, really am lacking. So maybe I'll have to take one of yours. All right. Good, good. <laughs> Actually, I got one from our colleague, Emily Barrett. Well, maybe you can use hers. But, oh, great. Uh, but uh, and as you said, returning to the show, uh, really a, a great guest. I, I like this guest because every time we see her, she makes me think and makes me laugh about markets and just the world in general. Her name is Neela Richardson, and she works at Edward Jones. Uh, Neela, welcome back to the show. I think this is your third time. Is that right? Thank you, Mike. It's so great to be here. And I I wasn't sure you were talking about me. So thanks for confirming (laughs) that. (laughs) Neela, I got to say, I'm also happy to have you this week because I know you're a proud resident of the great Garden State of New Jersey. And our friend Sarah here, believe it or not, has just discovered the Jersey Shore. For the first time in my life, I went to the Jersey Shore. And I can say I will be going back. Sarah's from Florida, and I think the Jersey Shore is basically like Florida with with colder water. Uh, Yeah, I had a hard time getting in the water. I'm used to like 80 80 degree water in Florida. It wasn't the same up here. So, Dila, the first question has to be, what's your favorite Jersey Shore town? Geez, I don't know if I have one. I can't say that I have one, but I can say that in Florida, you probably see a lot of New Jersey people, right? I mean, isn't it basically the same people? You're right. The people are the same. The beaches are different. (laughs) Okay. But Mike, do you have a favorite? Oh, that's a loaded question. You know, Sarah asked me that and I unloaded with about a 4,000 word response with footnotes. I like your diplomatic answer, though. That was a good one. You, you can't, It's a touchy subject. The most pressing <laughs> question of the entire podcast. That's right. That's right. But I'm very excited. I think Sarah is going to end up being a, a Jersey woman eventually. I, I can see it coming. Oh, God. I can see it coming. <laughs> <laughs> work on that hair. You need to work on getting that hair a little higher. I'll work but. on it. Tease it up. But, Neela, you know, as Sarah said in the introduction, wow, what a crazy summer it was. I mean, you know, this ferocious melt up in the stock market. I guess now this week we're looking at Thursday, a massive sort of sell off the the market coming back to earth. 
I mean, was that inevitable, do you think? And uh, how much should we worry be worried about this latest volatility in the market in, in your mind? It was inevitable and we shouldn't worry about it. I'll tell you. I mean, this is the early stages of what we think is a bear market uh, recovery that could turn into the next bull market. It's an early bull. It's going to wobble before it walks. And it's been so fast, this rally, that the economic fundamentals haven't had a chance to catch up yet. So I would frankly worry to see the rally continue in this relentless way. We should expect some occasional um, uh, sell-offs, an occasional pullback, that would not be outside of historical precedent for any year, especially a year with so much economic uncertainty as the one we're in now. So like you said, it was inevitable. I mean, you look at some measures of momentum for the S&P 500, for the NASDAQ, uh, reaching the highest levels since January of 2018. I mean, there's no doubt that we had seen this unbelievable run, pretty much just relentless since the March bottom. Does this open up a window for a new regime, though? I know a lot of people have been talking about this rotation, and the sell-off we saw on Thursday was very much tech-led. Can we possibly know that yet? Not yet, uh, but this is what we expect, and this is why we're telling our clients to maintain uh, diversification, maintain exposure across asset classes and sectors, especially those sectors that are poised for an economic recovery. So that's international, small cap, and sectors like financials and industrials. People say it over and over again because it's true, and it's true, and it's true. You can't put your eggs in one basket, even a tech-friendly basket. It's better to be diversified across sectors so you can actually uh, gain in in sectors that have been um, hurt by the pandemic, but poised to rise in the recovery. I always wonder about that. I mean, what do you have... A, di a different basket in each hand when you're carrying your eggs. It's, it, it's very complicated. I don't know how you, you actually do it. But, Neela, let's get back to that economic data. I mean, it seems like there is, uh, you know, one day there's a data point that looks great, whether it be, say, housing, um, retail sales, something like that. And then the next, you know, we're still looking at if you round up to something like a million jobless claims a week, what's the disconnect there? Can that data continue to improve on sort of the rosy end of the economic spectrum as this labor market still seems to struggle to get its head back above water? Is there sort of a meeting in the middle that will have to come? Or, you know, is some of the, the better data going to cool off as this labor data improves? Or, you know, what's, what's your outlook for to how to read the upcoming economic reports. You know, I think of it as a rally. It's like a four-legged rally. The first leg of that rally was ran by the Fed when they cut interest rates, when they dived into the credit markets and promised to buy basically everything that had a coupon <laughs> except for the lowest of the junk bonds. Um, they were the first leg of the rally. And then it was followed very quickly by fiscal stimulus, bipartisan fiscal stimulus, uh, almost $4 trillion. That's a lot of stimulus. We're still waiting on the completion of that 
leg. And then the rally, the next leg was the stock rally. So quick, the fervency of that rally from the March 23rd low. So now we're waiting for this handoff from the fiscal stimulus from the stock market to the economy. We're waiting for the economy to take the baton, so to speak. The problem is the data we've seen has shown a slowing momentum. You can see that in the jobs market, for example. Uh, the, the pace of job gains has slowed. And so the question, and this is going to be where you're going to see the volatility and the disconnect, is can the economy keep up enough to grab that baton and keep running? I think it's too early to do that without some stimulus, without some help. So we're going to need, I think, uh, that fifth round of stimulus that's stalemating, sitting on the sidelines in Congress to really get the economy shored up for a sustainable recovery. So this handoff that you're looking for then from the stock market to the economy to really take the baton and show that this was all worth it, the rally that we had seen off the bottom was worth it and made sense as well. How much patience should investors have? I mean, how long might that take, especially considering we have not yet seen another fiscal package? And like you said, the economic data is is a little bit mixed. Well, let's be fair, Sarah. (laughs) Investors have been rewarded by being patient. And they didn't even have to be that patient. What was it? Two bad weeks? And then we saw this huge rally. <laughs> I mean, uh, patience hasn't even been required uh, this summer for investors. But investors are going to have to get used to not flinching by a daily move. Uh, I think that the market has been actually rather complacent given how dire the economic fundamentals are. So this is a time for, for investors to get real in terms of their expectations. If you look back for the last three years, uh, going into this week, stocks had been returning 15% the last three years. Even before the pandemic, we did not expect that level of stock price return for 2020. So we need to reset our expectations for more reasonable growth going forward and occasional pullbacks and volatility and not let that shake us from uh, our strategy of a diversified approach. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Yeah, Neil, I was reading some of the notes you sent over uh, before this interview. And one of the things you mentioned was, you know, if if you have a balanced portfolio, say a 60% stocks, uh, 40% bonds type of portfolio, obviously right now is the time to rebalance that. Your your stock portion of the portfolio has gotten way above 60% to, you know, whatever it is currently uh, after this meltup. But the reason I bring it up is I helped edit a a story for the magazine last week talking about 60-40 portfolios. 
And there's been sort of, I, I wouldn't know if I'd call it a backlash, but a lot of people on Wall Street out there saying 60-40 is not the way to go going forward, given that Treasury yields are so low. No one really expects them to go negative, and you know, so you could get that sort of last leg of capital appreciation. And the stock market valuation is so high that both of those are, are sort of foreboding for, for future returns. I mean, the obvious question then is uh, a tough one. What do you do to replace a 60-40? And I think that could be the subject for about a five-hour podcast. <laughs> but I'm just curious from where you're sitting and talking to clients of Edward Jones, has it reached the level of sort of the individual investor yet that they're worried about the classic approach to a stable, balanced portfolio like 60-40? Are they asking about alternatives, about sort of, you know, taking a little more risk besides, say, an index fund or, or a real conservative mutual fund. Is there any interest from sort of the mom and pop investors and institutions even to go beyond 60-40 to say, well, this worked great for the last, I don't know, 40 years, but- 40 years, how about a century? <laughs> yeah, yeah, however long you measure it. Is this a false alarm, uh, I guess, it, it, to finish off my 13-part question? Is this a, a false false alarm about the sort of the outlook for a 60-40 type of strategy? Uh, or is it worth considering sort of branching out and looking at some alternatives? It is a real placeholder of perspective for clients. I will say that. Look, we are in this current environment that is likely to stay with us for a long time of lower for longer interest rates. And we thought they couldn't go any lower. They actually went lower in 2020, and they're likely to stay there longer. If you really think about what the Federal Reserve has done, cutting rates near zero, yes, okay, that's the first thing. But then introducing a whole new concept, a whole new level of flexibility in terms of saying we are not going to start raising interest rates as soon as we see inflation creep up to 2%. We're actually going to let it creep up, and we're going to let it creep up for some unspecified amount of time. What that basically did um, when the Fed announced that last week, the average inflation targeting policy, is said, we're going to keep interest rates, short-term rates, very low for a very long time, past 2022, and perhaps even longer. And so what that says to clients is, whoa, how am I going to get income on my bonds that are paying me nothing? And so bonds have really two purposes, right? One is for income, and the second is to cushion against volatility. And both of them are, the income one is for sure uh, lower when you have lower yields, but also the volatility cushion isn't as strong as if you can't see the interest rate decline a thousand basis points, <laughs> like, we, like we've seen under certain economic environments. There's not a lot of room to move for interest rates to go lower. So the question is, how do I get that kind of growth? How do I get that kind of yield? And this is why diversification matters. When you see a move like you have seen recently with a tech sell-off, it's important not to abandon that growth strategy because you're going to need it in your portfolio. This is an environment where you have to play both offense and defense because you're going to see volatility. So you need to have some defensiveness in your portfolio that's fixed income, that's utilities, that's consumer staples, but you're going to have to play offense. And the last thing I'll say is um, people who get close to retirement think, oh, wow, I'm going into retirement, my distribution stage of life. I need to really pay attention to the markets now. And I think what gets 
lost in that thought process is that you could spend 25 years in retirement. Uh, if you think that there's a, a bear market every three to four years, you could see eight bear markets in retirement. So so to give up on growth too early could be a mistake for your long-term enjoyment of your retirement. Eight bear markets during retirement is not, oh boy, that that's you're scaring I'm, I'm Mike out of going into retirement. I, I know. I'm never going to retire. That's the only solution. Never retire. You know, um, Mike, I think Neela needed more patience, though, for uh, that question you asked than stock investors maybe needed all year. That, that <laughs> so was a good was one, a, wasn't it? Yeah. It, was, it was a long one. She answered 12 of the 13 parts. That's not bad. That's, that's, that's pretty good. I'd give it an A+. Neela, I do want to ask you a hypothetical, though, and kind of put you on the spot. Oh, that wasn't putting me on the spot just now with Mike. Okay, it happened the Sarah, entire time, but even more study. so. Okay, Nila lives on the spot, right? <laughs> so it's very early on. We don't know if this volatility that we have seen is going to continue to the extent that we have seen what we saw towards the end of this past week. If we were to see this continue, is it possible that we could see the Fed at its meeting this month? do something more or say something more to try to ease the situation? And if they do, what would that mean from a portfolio perspective? You know, there's a variety of ways to answer that question. I'm going to answer it this way. I would like to think, and I do believe this, that the Fed will not be swayed by market moves. They know that they have done what they intended to do by their action, which is to add liquidity to the market and to improve credit market functioning. So we could continue to see the flow of credit to hard hit consumers and businesses. Beyond that, to change policy, to make sure that markets keep climbing is not part of the two-pronged mandate that the Fed has. <laughs> that mandate is to price stability and, and uh, full employment. And so what I hope you see is what's in that in put function for the Fed is the unemployment rate, which is still very high. And we know it's higher for minority groups. And so I think what the Fed is doing actually is really taking a deep look into its practices of full employment and making sure that that is as broad-based and reaches as many communities as possible. What you might see, though, the volatility do in terms of actors is to nudge Congress, which is sitting on a fifth round of stimulus that, you know, we're going to quibble over these numbers, but if the Republicans' initial bid was a trillion dollars in new stimulus and the Democrats was three trillion, look, it's still a trillion dollars in stimulus. That's a lot of stimulus uh, in Act 5 of the bipartisan legislation would do. So um, I think that's what vulnerable households are waiting for, but you might need a market nudge, unfortunately, to get policymakers to that point. Yeah, that's a big bid-ask spread there between a, a trillion and three trillion. But you're right, it's you know starting with a high base. You know, Neela, they say not to talk about religion and politics. I'm not going to ask you about religion, but you, you did bring up the politics. And I think we can't help but have to talk about it these days, uh, the election coming up in November. Um, we've had a few stories uh, out at Bloomberg talking about the way uh, people are sort of trying to hedge the event risk of the election, really almost unprecedented hedging taking place across all asset classes. But, you know, how do you communicate to clients about the risks and opportunities ahead of the election? Um, does it make sense to sort of take some risk off the table to, to try to sort of, you know, book some profits ahead of the election? Or is, is that a fool's errand to try to do that, given how, how this market's just been melting up anyway? 
You know, we've had one and very consistent message about elections and election years, even elections in 2020. Uh, don't play politics with your portfolio. Now, I'm going to grant a number of things. I'm going to grant that we've seen an unprecedented surprise this year in terms of the pandemic. I'm also going to grant that this is a very divisive election where because exacerbated by the pandemic, you're seeing social uh, upheaval, you're seeing racial injustices being protested in the streets, you're seeing higher than uh, ever before jobless numbers, GDP uh, declining by the most since the Great Depression. So there's a lot going in to a vote uh, in November this time around. But if you look historically, it really doesn't matter over the long term who controls Congress, who controls the White House. Uh, stocks have performed on average 10% uh, regardless of who controlled what in Washington. And I'm, I, I know I lived in Washington for 15 years. It's full of very important and very self-important people. So I know that this is going to be heart-wrenching to know that they don't control everything in the economy, but it's really economic and corporate fundamentals that matter the most uh, for a rally. So any reaction we see, and I do think we'll see a reaction uh, to the November win, it's likely to be short-lived. It's likely to be a knee-jerk reaction to what's going on, and it's likely to wash out over the longer term. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I do always wonder with that said, with the amount of research notes that land in my email inbox this time of year, how much are people just almost forced to comment on election volatility because it's coming up and because it's a talking point and you just have to have something to say if you're a strategist or if you're a financial advisor. <laughs> well, I'm always wary of being prompted to say something I don't have anything to say about. <laughs> That's not a good recipe. But I think there is also a difference between policy and politics. And we conflate the two all the time. But you can talk about policy. Policy has uh, an effect on, on companies. It has a disproportionate effect. And so the nuance is actually really interesting, but it's not a headline. It's not a talking point that's easily given. It's so much easier to just make this bipartisan reference to Republicans, Democrats, Biden, Trump, instead of digging into the policy details, because that's where the devil lies and the devil is what controls the outcomes. Uh, unfortunately, in some of this policy legislation. So it's really digging into those details and seeing how that affects particular sectors and who benefits and wins. And that's hard work. I think we got the headline there, Sarah. Uh, Neela says the devil's in charge. <laughs> no, as much as I try, I can't get the headline I no right. <laughs> I said no religion. <laughs> 
<laughs> you you all are very good at at, at uncovering the best headlines. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 our job. But I guess from a sector standpoint, maybe it makes sense to to pay closer to the election, right? I mean, you got Biden is a clean energy guy, Trump's a dirty energy guy, and you know you could you could go down the list. Um, is is even that foolish? Do you think to try to game that too much? Mike, I would never say anything you said was foolish, but I'm. Going to, <laughs> but I I know because I was a guy. <laughs> I was a government economist. I worked on the Dodd Frank legislation, and I know uh, firsthand that what is promised on the campaign trail looks a lot different by the time it makes its way through Congress and into the government agencies which actually write and enact law. So again, the first response, the knee-jerk response, it's it's too early. It's short-lived. Seeing how these policies play out as they move through the democratic process is what's really important. See, this is why we're so lucky to have someone like you on the show. All right, Mike, I, uh, I think it's that time, though. Is it time? Okay. Neely, I know you're a veteran of the show, and you know it's time for the craziest thing Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. All right. Well, I'll give you Emily Barrett's. Our colleague Emily Barrett uh, gave us this one via Marty Fridsden. Said the year-to-date return on high-yield debt turned positive in August, and the distress ratio, that is the percentage of bonds yielding greater than 1,000 basis points over treasuries, hit an all-time low for a recession. That's kind of a mouthful, but I guess that is a that is a pretty crazy thing. I guess not that surprising, given the the purchases the Fed's making in the in the corporate bond market. Um, but you know, how do you pay close attention to the credit markets? Uh, you know, as far as trying to suss out the the prospects for the stock market. You know, I. I- I, I did, <laughs> but the, 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 the credit, the, the fixed income markets have been so appeased by the Fed. I mean, there's been a remarkable level of stability. So if they're telling us anything, they're telling us the same thing over and over and over and over and over again right now. Um, so it's really a, a disconnect from what we're seeing in terms of rally. The fixed income markets are staying high. I mean, we might see some curve steepening, uh, but they are at high levels and they are priced for the economy that we're in, uh, whereas stock markets continue to drive towards the economy we hope to be in a year or two from now. All right, Neil. Well, Sarah dropped the ball on the craziest things. I'm really sorry, uh, guys. <laughs> yeah, that means I'm the winner again, I guess, unless, Neela, you can come through with, with something uh, for us here. Have you seen anything crazy this week? I've seen a lot of things crazy this week. Uh, schools just reopened in Jersey. Enough said, but nothing uh, market related <laughs> that's popping popping to mind. Sorry, Mike. You know what? I actually know. You know what? I do have one. I do have one. So I'm sorry. Oh, oh, oh <laughs> so, here so she goes. There was a lot of focus on um, the spread in implied volatility markets this week. If you look at implied volatility for the Nasdaq 100 compared to implied volatility for the S&P. So VXN minus VIX at the highest spread in 16 years. Um, and this was happening leading up to the trading day on Thursday, which is kind of when we saw this complete unravel, the Nasdaq down more than 5%. And there are a lot of theories kind of tussling around about why this is. Was implied vol for the NASDAQ so high because people were hedging against something like this? Or does it have to do with some serious 
out of the money call options that were being placed, forcing dealers to hedge. Um, so pretty crazy. And it's also, it's, it's gotten a lot of focus this week. That's pretty good. Is it, is it those guys on Reddit again doing Wall all Street this? Bets. Maybe if one of them listens, yeah. they're going to, uh, maybe that, if one of them listens, you can give the, us a call at our podcast hotline and, and leave us a message and let us know if it's you. <laughs> those characters are acting up again. All right. I know Neil has got to leave us soon, so I'm going to go through mine quickly. Sorry, I thought this was going to be the first time where I would take both gold and silver in, in uh, craziest things, but uh, you came through there. You, you came through at the last minute. But let me give you mine once again in the alternative asset space. And Sarah, you're a millennial, so I often go to you to make sense of, of millennial stuff for me. Is it true you guys are all crazy about houseplants? Um, I can tell you that I have a fake six-foot ficus tree sitting in the corner of my apartment right now. It's not a real houseplant, but it does look like one. So yes, we do love houseplants. Fake. <laughs> hey. All right, well, let me tell you about this houseplant in New Zealand. I I'll let the New York Post uh, headline uh, really explains it all. Headline is... Some sucker in New Zealand just spent $5,000 on a houseplant. And apparently there's something called a mini monstera, which is a very fancy houseplant that they've seen all sorts of interest in. Some auction site, houseplant auction site, has had more than 33,000 searches for this $5,000 houseplant. And the Post did the math for us. Um, it doesn't have many leaves on it. So they said, for anyone counting, that breaks down to about... $1,300 per leaf. I, so I can't good. say that I would spend that much on a houseplant. Mine was about $60 off of Amazon. Um, but people have different tastes, right? Maybe you should start making the, the fake Monstera plants. That, that could, be, uh, could be a little side hustle Yeah, I think it would be a good one. Okay. Uh, uh, one other alternative asset class. In California, with all the wildfires, private citizens are now buying fire trucks. Again, according to the New York Post, you know, the paper of record for crazy things. But they say, concerned over destructive wildfires, uh, California residents are going to Craigslist, the ultimate over-the-counter market, to buy fire trucks from a Sacramento company called Vans from Japan, including a $69,000 peer-built water truck. What's become of the world when private citizens have to buy their own fire trucks? I, I, this is distressing, I think. Yeah, that, on, what it's going on in California is so sad, but uh, we can always count on Mike to come to us with the alternative investment strategies. Next thing you know, Neela, if someone asks you about 6040, you're going to say, oh, why don't you go buy a Monsera plant? <laughs> or maybe, or maybe yeah. a fire truck. And a, and a fire truck. The ultimate in diversified assets. <laughs> well, Thank you're you. at it. Well, that's, that's a free one for you, Neela. You can use that. That's, <laughs> Thank uh, you. <laughs> You're like, sure. All right. Sure. Well, I, I, I mentioned uh, our podcast hotline. Remember, if you give us a call, we may play a message on the show if you leave one. It's 646 324 3490. And unfortunately, we are going to have to leave it there. So, Neela Richardson, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. It's always great to talk with you, too. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. Of course, thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Jordan Gaspore. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.